That music tells you, doesn't it, that you're about to journey with us on a special edition of Omnia in Context. Our destination, India, and our guide is a distinguished guest who for 30 years served as a journalist for the Times of India. But it's his connection with one famous Indian leader and the gifts he received from that person that we're here to talk about today. Arun Gandhi is a world-renowned peace activist, author, and the fifth grandson of Mohandas Gandhi, often referred to as Mahatma Gandhi. When Arun was just 12 years old, he was sent from South Africa to India to live for a time with his famous grandfather. And for two years, he sat at the feet of one of the world's spiritual and political giants. Now, more than seven decades after that life-changing experience, Arun Gandhi is here to share with us what it was like, what he learned, and how the trajectory of his own life guided him to become a voice for peace in a time his grandfather would not see. Arun Gandhi, welcome. Thank you. And let's begin by going back. It's 1946, you're 12 years old, and you've just arrived in Maharashtra, India, to meet your grandfather, who is, of course, already famous. D- did you have something in your mind, your imagination, uh, of what this big event was going to be like? Well, I was a little surprised because, uh, you know, we lived in South Africa where the ashram, although it was simple, uh, it was a little more modern. We had a proper brick and uh, mortar building uh, house and simple furniture, but there was furniture, chairs and so on. So when I was going to India, I had this impression that since grandfather is so much uh, more popular around the world, that he would have a bigger house and secretaries and, and all these people around him. And when I went there and I saw that it was flat land, dry, absolutely dusty, turning into a desert, very hot. His house was just a simple little mud hut, which was as big as this room. And it was made of mud and bamboo, thatch roof. And I couldn't believe it. Uh, Sitting on the floor, there was not a piece of furniture there except a little desk that he used when he did his writing. Other than that, there was nothing. And we were sitting on the floor. So it, it was a little bit of a culture shock for me. But uh, then when I met him and he was very loving and right from the first meeting he kind of put us at ease by embracing us and kissing us on the cheeks and he showed it. I mean, he, he was very happy to see us. Wow. How would you describe your overall time with him? In a sense, very magical, especially when we traveled. I still marvel at this because in those days there was no telecommunications. We didn't have cell phones. or I was always surprised how hundreds and sometimes thousands of people, poor people, came to know about his movements. That they would come out on the road and line the roads just to get a glimpse of him passing by. At railway stations there were hundreds of people standing there in the middle of the night just to see the train pass by carrying him. When you saw that kind of adulation, it was tremendous. 
And I kind of glorified in being next to him. (laughs) Well, I guess so. And I think what so many people, even to this day, appreciate so much about your grandfather is that he wasn't just a teacher. He lived. He lived by example the things that he believed in. Mm -hmm. He always said that we must live what we want others to learn. And he demonstrated that through his own life. He never asked anybody to do anything if he didn't do it himself. There's a very wonderful little episode in the life. There was a couple with a little boy uh, who had a a tremendous sweet tooth and he used to eat sweets all the time. And he got uh, ill with that and the doctor said that uh, you got to cut down sugar. The parents would tell him every day, no sugar for you because the doctor said no. But they would have sweets on the table and they would partake of it. So one day the mother brought the child to grandfather and asked grandfather to speak to him and tell him he shouldn't eat sugar because it's not good for him. And grandfather said, you come back after a week and I'll tell him. And she couldn't understand why she had to wait for a week, but she couldn't argue with grandfather. So she went away and came back after a week and grandfather took the boy aside and spoke to him quietly in his ear. And basically what he told him was that I have stopped eating sugar because your doctor has asked you not to eat sugar. I'm not going to eat, so will you give it up also? And immediately the boy gave up sugar, never touched it again. The parents came back and asked him, what did you tell him? We were saying the same thing to him and he wouldn't listen to us. And grandfather said, nothing. I just told him that I haven't eaten for a week and I won't eat until he is allowed to eat. So he accepted. We we have to live what we want others to learn. Mm-hmm. And of course, that brings to mind that iconic quote of your grandfather's, be the change you wish to see in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, for your grandfather and for you, is that more about personal transformation or is it taking action in the public square? It's mostly personal transformation because of the lifestyle that we have chosen and because of the circumstances surrounding that kind of lifestyle. We have created uh, um, situations which are uh, very negative. Um, For instance, we can't get along with people because they're different color or different religion or different uh, ethnic group or whatever. You know, we have so many labels to keep people apart. So we have a very negative kind of lifestyle and we just live with it, you know. And I've heard so many people keep saying, well, I am what I am, you just got to accept me for what... That's not true. Nobody is what they are. They are what they are because they don't make an attempt to improve. So in the same way, we have to continuously look at our weaknesses and transform those weaknesses into strength. That is the purpose of life. We never stop learning. Ah, yes. And that brings to mind your latest book, The Gift of Anger and Other Lessons from My Grandfather Mahatma Gandhi. Now, this is a fascinating topic because most of us don't think of anger as a gift. We think of it as a weakness, but rarely do we think of it as a gift. I'm really fascinated to hear what your grandfather taught you about anger. Well, grandfather said to me that anger is a wonderful emotion. It's not something that we should be ashamed of. 
It's a very powerful uh, emotion, but what we need to do is to learn how to channel it intelligently so that we can use it effectively. Uh, he used the analogy of electricity, and he said anger is like electricity. It's just as useful and just as powerful, but only if we use it intelligently. But it can be just as deadly and destructive if we abuse it. So just as we channel electrical energy and bring it into our lives and use it for the good of humanity, we must learn to channel anger in the same way so that we can use that energy for the good of humanity rather than abuse it and cause violence. So he looked at anger as something very positive and a good emotion, but we have uh, neglected it, we don't teach it, we don't talk about it, and we just leave everybody to find their own ways of dealing with it. And the result is that we all end up abusing it. You know, we colloquially say that when somebody is angry, they are mad. And we are literally mad at the moment because we are not in control of our minds. And when we are not in control of our mind, we do wrong things. So in order to be able to use this energy positively, we need to have control of the mind. And uh, that can be done when we have regular exercises, just as we do physical exercise for a strong body, we need to do mental exercises for a strong mind. Grandfather showed me a simple exercise. He asked me to sit quietly in a room for a few minutes every day and hold in front of me something that gave me pleasure to look at. It could be a flower or a photograph or whatever. But for one minute I had to focus my full attention on that object and then close my eyes and see how long I could keep that image in my mind. And the moment I closed my eyes in the beginning, I found that the image vanished because I had no control over it. But when I began doing this exercise regularly every day, I found that I could keep that image longer and longer in my mind. And to that extent, my mind was coming under my control. I understand, yeah. Um, on the other hand, there is a, a different kind of anger, and I would say that it's kind of a collective anger, not just in the United States, but around the world. And it seems to come from what I would call structural injustices, mm -hmm. things that seem to be baked into the system, into our governments. Could you talk about that? We generally accept it as inevitable that the government has done this, and so we just have to live by it. But we really don't have to. We have to stand up for justice. And anywhere we see any kind of injustice, we have to stand up and be counted. And that is what nonviolence allows individuals to do. It empowers every individual to take action. You don't have to wait for a big group of people to support you. You just begin to take action and the people will follow. Is anger able to be turned into courage? Yes, yes, if we learn to channel anger effectively and positively, it can turn into courage, it can turn into something positive that we can use. And, and what are the steps that you suggest for doing that? Well, I think mind control is very important um, because if we don't have control over the mind, we just immediately flare up and, and then it's too late to do anything. So. 
controlling the mind, being able to stop yourself from acting in a moment of madness is the first major step in learning how to channel anger effectively. You know, like the Buddhists say that uh, an untrained mind is like a monkey, is jumping all over the place in all the trees. You know, I don't think there's any doubt that your grandfather was probably one of the great leaders of all time. And I'm wondering what you learned from him about leadership. The modern concept of leadership is more up-down leadership, where the leader is at the top and like leading the flock of sheep. And that's not uh, the right kind of leadership. The best kind of leadership is able to inspire people to see the greatness within themselves. And that requires a great deal of humility. That's what my grandfather did in his life. But neither did he abdicate his power. I mean, he must have understood that power and humility are not opposites. No, they're not opposites, they're one. But you don't enforce that power with force, but you make the person realize their own power and their... Oh, yeah. You know, and as I think about it, some of the great leaders from Jesus onward seem to have that unique blend of authority and humility working in concert. Well, I think, you know, both of them, Jesus as well as my grandfather and Dr. King and others also showed the potential of this by their own humbleness, their own humility. I'm sure when Jesus decided to conduct his ministry, he didn't expect that, you know, he's going to influence so many people and that he was out to influence them. He just did what he did because he knew that was the right thing to do. And because he was doing it with humbleness and humility, people began to understand and follow him. The same with my grandfather. He never went out to muster thousands of people there. Even when he launched the Salt March, which was the straw that broke the camel's back, everybody laughed at him. The British administration, as well as the Indian leaders, said, you're going to bring down the British Empire by defying the Salt Laws? It seemed so ridiculous, but he said, yes, I'm going to do that. And when he launched the march, he handpicked only 79 people to go on that march. But just the selfless act of walking 245 miles to the seashore to break the law inspired people so much that millions turned out and the British were aghast and didn't know what to do. You know, as I listened to this story, I have to believe that there's more to it than just strategy or courage. I mean, there has to be a deep and abiding love of humanity that that he had and that they felt. I mean, otherwise, why would they leave their fields and their families and stand up and march with him uh, in what looked to be such a fruitless enterprise? Yeah, the people knew that he cared for them, he cared for the oppressed and the poor, and uh, and he did everything possible for them. And, and so they had that respect for him. I am sure. By the way, speaking of respect, I heard you tell a story once about how your grandfather taught you the lesson of respect for the earth in quite an unusual way. And I'm wondering if you would share that story with our listeners here. Yes, uh, this happened when I was uh, 11 years old and I 
was going for my tuitions and I walking back from my tuitions to um, the ashram I looked at the pencil it was about three inches long and I said I deserve a better pencil this is too small to use and uh, without a second thought I just threw it away because I was so sure grandfather would give me a new pencil but that evening when I asked him for a new pencil he wanted answers to many questions why did I become small and where did I throw it away and and then he asked me to go out and look for it and I, by then it was getting dark and I said you must be joking I said you don't expect me to look for this pencil in the dark he said oh yes I do here's a flashlight go out and look for it and I spent two hours searching for it and when I finally brought it to him he said now I want you to sit here and learn two very important lessons the first lesson is that even in the making of a simple thing like a pencil we use a lot of the world's natural resources and when we throw them away we are throwing away the world's natural resources and that is violence against nature and the second lesson is that because in an affluent society we can afford to buy all these things in bulk we overconsume the resources of the world and because we overconsume them we are pe depriving people elsewhere of these resources and they have to live in poverty and that is violence against humanity and that was the first time I realized that all of these little things that we do every day uh, over consuming and throwing away and destroying because we can afford to do it that all of this amounts to violence either against nature or against people to make me understand this lesson thoroughly he made me draw a genealogical tree of violence just as you do a family tree with violence as the grandparent and passive violence and physical violence as the two branches and every day I had to do self-examination of everything that I had experienced or done or whatever it was all of that had to be analyzed and examined and put in their appropriate places now physical violence is something we are accustomed to and we see it all the time so we know because it's the kind of violence that hurts physically hurts us and uh, so that was easy to determine and put in their place uh, but passive violence is something we have never heard of so grandfather said that anything that we do that hurts somebody is, is passive violence simple things like when we discriminate against people or we overconsume resources or we throw away resources waste things or accept poverty and don't, don't do anything about that all of these things where we don't use any physical force we are not fighting with anybody and yet we are hurting people and now we see you know we, half of the world lives in affluence and the other half of the world lives in uh, abject poverty and uh, we just live with it and say you know that's what it is I have a very interesting experience uh, I 
talked about taking a group of people on a Gandhi legacy tour. One year we had a group of young women from Wellesley College. And uh, we told them that this is a modest tour. We travel by buses and we go to the villages. You'll have clean living accommodation and everything, but not all the luxuries that you're accustomed to. And they said, oh, they don't mind. They, they can rough it out. Well, after about four or five days of traveling by bus and, and having a bath from a bucket of water which you have to pour on yourself, they were getting, you know, a little uneasy and antsy and they started whispering among themselves, when are we going to uh, see something, have a shower and wash our hair and sleep in a proper bed and all that. And then we reached the city of Ahmedabad and uh, somebody had just opened a five-star hotel and they were offering rooms at half the price as a promotion. So our agent took the rooms there and we uh, came into this lobby for our rooms to be assigned. And when we entered the lobby and saw all the luxuries that were there, uh, these women were thrilled. I mean, they finally were seeing things that they were accustomed to. So they were dreaming of going to their rooms and sleeping on a proper bed and having a shower and washing their hairs and all that. And then they went up to their rooms and uh, half hour later they came looking for me and they said, Mr. Gandhi, we need to move from here. So I said, what happened? Suddenly you were so enthusiastic moments ago. Why do you want to move now? And they said, well, we went to the rooms and looked out of the window and we see all those poor people living down there just below us in such bad condition and we feel guilty of living in this luxury. We need to move to another hotel. And I said, no, this is the reality of the world. And half of the world lives like them and the other half lives like what we are doing here. But because in the U.S. we don't have a window to the other half of the world, we can block them out and not think about them. But here you're going to see them every day and I hope that it will give you some idea of what your responsibility is to ensure that they also have a better lifestyle. I don't know whether they learned anything from it or not, but that is unfortunately the reality today. We block them out and don't think about them and uh, just let them languish in their own misery. Yeah. And, and isn't that part of the responsibility of leadership, to shine a light into those corners of the world? It is a part of the leadership, but I don't think it's enough to just shine a light on that. What we need to do is get down and start doing something about it. A good leader would start a program and do something about it rather than just talk about it. Yeah. Which, by the way, unfortunately brings me to my final question. I wish we could talk forever. Uh, but here it is. What is next for you? What are your next steps? I don't know. I haven't thought about it. I'm taking it a day at a time. And wherever, you know, fate takes me, I follow. People are asking me to write another book, and I'm not sure whether I'll get down to it. But I might. I, I don't know. Well, well, I hope so. I hope that you continue to share the gifts of your past 
as well as the gifts of your present uh, well into the future. Thank you so much, Mr. Gandhi, for this time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Arun Gandhi, peace activist, author. His latest book is The Gift of Anger and Other Lessons from My Grandfather Mahatma Gandhi. There are other books as well, including children's books entitled Grandfather Gandhi and Be the Change, a Grandfather Gandhi Story. You can also find Mr. Gandhi on Facebook and on his website, arungandhi.net. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast, take a moment and do that, and be sure to let us know your thoughts. Omnia in Context is a program of the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership, based in Chicago and serving the world. Visit us at omnialeadership.org and learn about our interfaith peacemaker teams. I'm Vince Eisner for the Omnia Institute. We hope you'll join us again soon.